Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, a conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. I'm your host, Ian Gillespie, and I'm here to ask the questions and find the answers you need to know. We want to help our listeners know how to prevent and detect illness and how to navigate our healthcare system. Be sure to subscribe to the Doc Talks podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Gillespie. Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast brought to you by St. Joseph's Healthcare London. Today we're talking about urinary incontinence or loss of bladder control. It's a common and often embarrassing problem and it occurs more often than you might think, affecting one in four women, middle-aged and older. The severity of urinary incontinence can range from occasionally leaking urine when you cough or sneeze to having an urge to urinate that's so sudden and strong you can't make it to the washroom in time. Our expert today is Dr. Blaine Welk. Dr. Blaine Welk is a urologist at St. Joseph's Hospital and an associate professor of surgery and epidemiology and biostatistics at Western University here in London. Dr. Welk completed his medical degree at Western, followed by a urology residency at the University of British Columbia, and specialized training at the University of Toronto in the evaluation and treatment of male and female incontinence, neurogenic bladder dysfunction, and male urethral stricture disease. Throughout his career, Dr. Welk's been the principal investigator in numerous studies and is the current vice president of the International Neurourology Society and the Neurogenic Bladder Research Group. Dr. Welk, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thanks, Ian. So, right off the top, there's a few statistics here that have been provided, I guess, from the Canadian Continence Foundation, that more than 3.3 million Canadians experience at least one type of urinary incontinence, and that includes individuals with neurological disorders and spinal cord injuries, 10% of six-year-olds, 15% of men aged 16 over, but 25%, one in four women middle-aged or older. And there's a number of different types of urinary incontinence, so I thought just to get us going here, I'll name a type and maybe I'll get you to kind of fill in the blanks and explain what it is. One type here is stress incontinence. What, what's that, Dr. Welk? Yeah, so stress incontinence refers to incontinence that occurs during stress maneuvers. So for most women, that would involve something like coughing, sneezing, lifting something heavy, or doing physical activity. That's a very common type of stress incontinence. It usually Hmm. results in older, middle-aged, older women. One of the causes from it is childbirth. So childbirth can damage some of the supports to the bladder and lead to stress incontinence later in life. Okay. And then there's something called urge incontinence, and that's, I assume, different than the stress incontinence. Correct. So whereas stress incontinence happens during physical activity, urge incontinence can just happen out of the blue. And basically what's happening there is urge incontinence is part of overactive bladder, where the bladder is sending a signal that it wants to void before you're ready for it to void. Sometimes this can mean you're on the way to the washroom because you get the urge to pee, and before you get there to void, the urine starts to leak out. That would be urge incontinence. Right. And then another type here, overflow incontinence. 
So overflow incontinence is a little bit less common in women. That is a situation where the bladder is basically so full and it's not emptying well that a little bit of urine leaks out all the time. I describe it to patients as like trying to carry a glass that's full up to the brim with water <laughs> and trying to walk across the kitchen with it. There's a chance it can spill out and it's a similar sort of thing with overflow incontinence. It happens because the bladder doesn't empty well. That's common in men with prostate problems. It's less common in women but can happen. And the strange thing about it is a lot of times you don't have a lot of symptoms from it. So it develops slowly over time and you don't notice your bladder's not emptying well. And people are sometimes kind of shocked when I tell them how full their bladder is. In women, most of the time that happens with neurologic diseases or after certain types of surgeries that have been done for incontinence. Right. And then you've got here functional incontinence, which I guess is tied to a sort of a physical impairment. Correct. So functional incontinence means, you know, in a normal situation, the person would probably be able to reach the washroom in time. But because of physical limitations, for example, mobility problems, it takes them, you know, 15, 20 minutes to get to the washroom. And by then it's too late. So that's one where, you know, a urologist is not as helpful because it's more sort of a mobility problem that's mm -hmm. causing the issue or other sorts of medical problems that prevent someone from getting to the washroom or using the washroom appropriately. Right. And then on my list here finally is mixed incontinence, which I assume sort of combines a couple of the uh, types that we've already discussed. Correct. So mixed incontinence is usually a mix of stress incontinence and urge incontinence. So women can have a combination of both of those types of incontinence and sometimes require multiple types of treatment for it. Causes. Again, I've got another list here, but I'll kind of lead you off with pregnancy and childbirth. Correct. Correct. So there's been a lot of studies showing that pregnancy and particularly vaginal delivery put women at risk for stress incontinence in the future. The theory is that during childbirth, there's a lot of stress on the pelvic floor. And part of what happens is the muscles, the nerves, the ligaments that all support the urethra and contribute to normal continence get damaged. While you can compensate for those that, that damage when you're younger, over time that can get worse. And you know, younger women can have quite profound stress incontinence too after childbirth, but most of the time this sort of slowly worsens. And by the time a woman reaches their 40s or 50s or 60s, the stress incontinence is more apparent and more likely to bother the, the, uh, the person and for them to seek out care for it. Right. And then another cause is simply age, correct? Correct. So along with aging comes a whole bunch of negative changes, unfortunately. Some of those negative changes involve changes to the tissues around the vagina. They uh, lose some of their strength, some of the ligaments and collagen around the bladder that support and hold the bladder in place also change. And with that, uh, you become predisposed to stress incontinence. Another cause, menopause. Yep, so menopause sort of goes along with the loss of the um, integrity of the supports of the bladder. Menopause is sort of related to aging, as obviously they both, menopause occurs at a certain age range, usually 45 to 55, and that's the same kind of age range where some of the accumulated problems and risk factors for stress incontinence have happened in a woman's lifetime. Right. And then also you've got here obstructions, which I guess would be tumors and, well, I see here urinary stones. Yeah, so it's very rare that you would have obstruction in a woman. It is possible. Most of the time, it's from well-meaning incontinence surgeries, actually, that were done previously. So incontinence surgeries, sometimes if, when they're done, they can block off the urine flow a little bit, hmm. and that obstruction can lead to abnormal bladder function over time. 
it's very rare for a stone or a tumor or something to occur that would block off the urine flow in women. There's various sort of rare entities like urethral diverticulums or outpouchings of the urethra or strictures in the urethra where there's scar tissue that blocks off the urine flow. Those are all very rare entities that, you know, your urologist or pelvic floor specialist can evaluate you for and ensure they're not contributing. But, you know, those are like one in a thousand to the other types of stress incontinence we talked about, namely stress and urge incontinence. Right. And of course, I mean, obviously we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about I guess the sort of social stigma surrounding this, right? This is a, a condition that for many individuals would be simply embarrassing, correct? And is that a, a barrier to seeking treatment or? I think so. I mean, it's definitely something that women don't always discuss with their physicians. So as a specialist, I'm seeing people that are being referred to me with a problem already identified by someone. I think a lot of a lot of family physicians obviously are busy. They've got a lot of problems that they're taking care of with patients. And urinary incontinence is often viewed as, you know, a lower severity problem. But the reality is, you know, studies have shown incontinence decreases work productivity. It impacts women's quality of life decreases sleep. It can affect intimacy with their partners. The list goes on and on with the impacts it has on someone's life, never mind the financial and the medical impacts in terms of incontinence and skin breakdown, the cost of using incontinence supplies. So it really is quite a significant problem for women. And I see the women that have already sought out treatment and are looking for answers, but there's a whole other population of women out there who really haven't been able to see anyone or haven't brought it up with their physician in terms of, you know, it being a problem and what treatment options might be available for them. Right. It might be a difficult question to answer, but do you have a sense of how many undiagnosed or untreated sort of individuals or cases you might have out there? Yeah, so the majority of women are not treated and probably are not seeing physicians for it. I mean, obviously, specialists are, are much less, are, are not frequent enough to cover 3 million Canadians for bladder health. So there's there's a huge proportion of people out there that either aren't bothered and aren't seeking treatment, which is totally fine. But then there's that group out there that, you know, are bothered, but just don't know how to seek out treatment for it or don't feel comfortable discussing it with someone to get treatment for it. And I mean, that's really the population that, that is, you know, not not well served and that we should be trying to um, you know, improve care for. Right. And so I guess we, we will get to treatment then. I mean, we went through the various types, and so there's obviously various treatments. Right off the top, I'm seeing something called it's sort of a, a behavioral therapy, a bladder training. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So the nice thing about some of the easy treatments like behavioral therapy is that they can work for any type of incontinence, you know, other than overflow incontinence or some of the more rare types for the general stress incontinence and urge incontinence, behavioral therapy works great. And what you're doing there is you're trying to modify your habits to sort of fit around the incontinence. So some things you can do are you can go to the washroom more frequently. So while you're 20 and you have a, you know, a, a bladder that's made of steel and nothing can break it. When you're 30, 40, 50, the bladder isn't always as forgiving and you have to sometimes void a little bit more regularly or a little bit more frequently than you used to when you were in your 20s. I often see people go and say, why else? I only used to have to pee at four o'clock at the end of the day. Well, you know, that's not really a normal situation. So for most people, average number of voids in a day is probably around five to eight. So the, one of the first things we do for behavioral therapy is we ask people to void more often and on a regular schedule. And the idea is that that prevents them from getting to that severe urgency where they get 
leakage of urine. And in women with stress incontinence, it prevents the bladder from being super full so that hopefully that inadvertent sneeze or cough is less likely to make, make them leak. So part of that is just for an individual to almost sort of schedule their trips to the toilet? Is that... Exactly. Yeah. So that's that's usually what I tell people to do. Everyone's got a phone with them. A lot of people have smartwatches with them. You set an alarm and just sort of make it part of your habit, part of your routine. After a couple of weeks, it just becomes, you know, it doesn't need prompting from anything and it just becomes sort of part of the new normal. And that's definitely a very easy thing to implement. It has no risks and it's something that people can do without having to see a physician. They can, they can try doing that on their own. And then w- what about diet. Are there certain foods or beverages that one should avoid or actually consume that might help prevent the condition? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, firstly, the fluid intake is a big thing. So what goes in must come out. That's what I tell patients. And, you know, if you're drinking a huge amount of fluid, which some women will drink a large amount, is kind of part of the health fad now in, um, in you know, the 2020s where you drink a large amount of water in the day. Well, if you drink five liters in the day, you're going to have to avoid five liters in the day. And the more fluid that's going through your system, the more likelihood there is of incontinence. So not to say that people should dehydrate hydrate themselves and, and not, not drink at all, but aiming for between sort of one and two liters is probably a reasonable amount of fluid intake. The other thing is timing the fluid intake around your activities a bit. So if people say, well, you know, I'm fine every, all, all the time except for in the morning, then I have to really tell them, well, think, think carefully about what you're doing in the morning that's different. And sometimes that's where they have a large amount of fluid intake, sometimes it's when they have a large amount of coffee. So coffee is one of the fluids that comes up quite frequently. Probably a cup or two of coffee a day is not harmful, but when you get up to sort of three, four, five cups of coffee a day, that's probably enough that it is aggravating urinary symptoms and increasing the risk of incontinence a bit. So one of the first things I tell people to do, again, easy thing, no risk, you can try reducing your coffee or changing your coffee intake for a couple weeks and see if that improves your incontinence. Again, unlikely to cure things completely, but it's an easy thing to to look at to see if you can take some control back over the bladder. And then what about sort of just muscular exercises or therapies or, or rehabilitation? Is that Does that possibly help in, in treatment? Yep. And again, a great strategy that I love to recommend to patients. It's again, one that people can start on their own. So while it's always good to chat with a physician and make sure there's nothing else um, concerning about the incontinence, like one of the rare types of incontinence that might be more serious. If it sounds like general incontinence, seeing one of the pelvic floor health physiotherapists is a great way to help to improve bladder function and reduce incontinence. People can learn how to do Kegel exercises on their own. So there's lots of websites and online resources out there that talk about Kegel exercises. Exercising those muscles have been shown to help reduce both stress and urge incontinence. So again, it's a great way to treat most types of incontinence. If you really want to supercharge it, then I tell people we'll see a pelvic floor physiotherapist. They're quite widespread in Ontario now. If you have coverage for physiotherapy, it should be covered. And that's a great way to sort of get a personal trainer for your bladder to really help you get the most you can out of the exercises and give you the best chance of, of improving the, the symptoms of, uh, of urinary incontinence. Right. And just in case for listeners, obviously, you mentioned Kegel. That's K-E-G-E-L. Is that right? That's a... Correct. <clears throat> okay, someone wanted to... Google that or look something up on that. So, and then also medication, I assume. 
Yep, so medications work prominently for urge incontinence. So there's not a lot of great medications out there for stress incontinence. So again, urge incontinence where you're rushing to the bathroom, you can't get there in time, and you start to leak urine before you get there. In those situations, medical therapy is usually the first sort of physician-initiated intervention that, that, that can be offered. That involves taking a medication that helps change the way the bladder senses urges and try to take away some of the, the spasticity that can happen within the bladder for overactive bladder. These medications can be prescribed by your family physician. Again, it's an easy thing to trial for a few weeks to see if it helps with leakage of urine. There are side effects, so you do have to talk to your doctor about side effects and making sure you're sort of selecting one that is the, you know, the best option for you. And from there, we can see if that will improve the urge incontinence. Those medications usually work pretty well. They usually have about 60-70% effectiveness at helping with the urgency incontinence. Are there, there are certain more complicated procedures involving one Botox injections? Right. So I usually say Botox in the bladder to patients and they look at me like like I'm a bit crazy. Most people have heard about Botox, obviously in the face for cosmetic reasons, but it's actually used for a wide variety of medical problems like headaches, abnormal sweating, spasticity in muscles, and we can also use it for the bladder. For the bladder, we can actually put a small telescope into the bladder and do some injections in the wall of the bladder. And that often helps with urgency incontinence. So again, that's specific to urge incontinence. It's not going to help stress incontinence. It works quite well. The side effect with it is there is a rare risk of it working too well and you not being able to void afterwards. If you can't urinate after the procedure, sometimes you have to use a catheter for a short period of time. So that's one of the limitations of it. It's a great treatment that we usually try or offer to patients after they've tried oral medications and those either haven't worked or the patient hasn't been able to tolerate them well. And then, again, I I don't know what this is, peripheral nerve stimulation. That is uh, one of the possible potential treatments. Correct. So peripheral nerve stimulation is a really neat treatment. You put small needles or you put a little implantable device in the lower leg, and that actually stimulates one of the nerves that shares the innervation with the bladder. So it's kind of, it has some crosstalk with the bladder when you stimulate that nerve. It's great, but currently there aren't a lot of these devices or uh, procedures available in Canada. In the United States, they're fairly commonly used, but uh, it hasn't really made its way into the Canadian healthcare system too well. So at this point, I don't know of anyone offering these in Canada, unfortunately. Hopefully that'll change in the future as some of these new devices reach the mainstream. But right now, it's not a great treatment for Canadians, unfortunately, just because of availability. Right. And and what about other sort of surgical intervention? Is that common? Yep. So for stress incontinence, usually we'll try behavioral modifications. We'll try pelvic floor muscle exercises. Women might try a special type of insert that goes inside the vagina called a pessary that helps with incontinence. But if those things aren't working, ultimately for stress incontinence, you would consider doing some surgery to try to fix that. Surgery usually involves doing something to support the urethra. So that's the tube that leads out of the bladder to try to treat that stress incontinence. And what you're trying to do is rebuild some of the supports that have been lost through all the things we talked about at the beginning, aging, childbirth, genetics, to try to strengthen things again and prevent leakage of urine. 
You can make slings, you can use synthetic slings, you can do suspensions where you suspend the bladder to one of the ligaments in the pelvis. And all of these things work reasonably well for stress incontinence, but unfortunately none of them are perfect. So there's always still a risk of, of a recurrent leakage of urine or a risk that things aren't quite 100% perfect after these procedures. But again, if a woman's bothered by stress incontinence and they've tried the conservative things, that's usually the next thing I would be talking to them about. Right. How common is the surgical procedure? What, can, you, can you give us an idea of the percentage of cases that might require that? Yeah, so I would say the the majority of women I see with stress incontinence would go on to have some sort of surgical intervention. It's not it's not that common in the big picture, just because a lot of women either aren't bothered enough by their stress incontinence to want surgery, or they're able to fix it with sort of minor adjustments with behavioral therapy and some pelvic floor exercises. I would say in my practice, probably about 50% of women with stress incontinence go on to have surgery, but I'm seeing a very select group of people, obviously, that, uh, that, that have sort of been screened already for having stress incontinence and needing something done for it. The population as a whole, stress incontinence is quite, stress incontinence surgery is, is fairly uncommon. So we talked a little bit about the stigma and embarrassment of it, but if, if a woman feels that obviously she, she's aware that she's having, suffering from urinary incontinence, who does she go to? I mean, I guess the first step is the family doctor, is that correct? And then where are they referred after that? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. So usually the point of care is always, or the first point of contact is always going to be the family physician. That's kind of the way the Canadian healthcare system works anyway. You know, from there, I really encourage people to try to do some of the conservative stuff on their own. Um, unfortunately, there's a, a lack of specialists out there that can deal with this kind of problem. I know myself and my colleagues who specialize in this in urogynecology struggle with very long wait lists and not always being able to take on all the patients that are having problems and being referred to us. So, you know, definitely first point of contact is the family physician. They can do some simple things like consider pelvic floor physiotherapy, do some screening tests to make sure this isn't anything else other than, you know, sort of regular stress and urging continence. It's important to do things like a screening urine test to make sure there's not blood in the urine. If there's a lot of blood, then sometimes we worry the incontinence could be coming from, you know, a structural problem in the bladder. And these kind of things are, you know, a good first step. And then trying to find a specialist who has, has the ability to, to see someone with one of these problems is a great next step. Urogynecologists or urologists with an interest in this area are usually where people are referred to by their family physicians. And are there any sort of new treatments being developed or researched on the horizon? Yeah, so there's been a lot of a lot of new things tested, you know, in terms of things that are potentially, you know, a little bit further along. There's been a lot of research into using stem cells injected into the urethral sphincter to try to help to regrow the body's own continence mechanism. Those studies have been have haven't sort of shown us a, a clear path forward to a, a treatment that we can offer women in the near future, but it's sort of an exciting area to uh, to look at and an exciting area where hopefully some new developments will come, but we're probably still looking at sort of five to 10 years in the future for that. There's new devices out there and ways to activate the pelvic floor muscles 
to try to improve incontinence. These are, these are available for women. Again, they can seek them out without having to see a physician. They're a good option for some women. They are usually private pay, so women usually have to pay for them out of pocket. It's not something that's covered by the healthcare system. These are a bit newer, and we're still sort of doing studies to see which women are the best ones to benefit from these and to see how well they work compared to other treatments. So I think that's an area that's really going to have, have a lot of additional, you know, additional research coming out and some, some better recommendations in the next few years for, uh, for women as to, you know, if they'll get benefit from doing these procedures. And then finally, I mentioned it briefly, but there's some implantable devices that help modulate nerves and that can help with urgency incontinence. These are sort of brand new and and just being, you know, released in the United States. Hopefully some of these will make their way to Canada. And the challenge there will be, is the cost something the healthcare system can absorb and, and fund? I think those will be an exciting option for people with urge incontinence. And we'll see where, where those sort of fall in, in the Canadian healthcare system in the next couple of years. Dr. Welk, we were talking about menopause, and obviously that occurs when women produce less estrogen. Is indeed there is a hormonal imbalance sometimes play a part in urinary incontinence? Yeah, so it's a great question, Ian. The story behind estrogen and incontinence is a little bit complicated. So studies have been done showing that oral estrogen is not probably helpful for women's incontinence. If anything, it might actually make things a bit worse. So hormone replacement therapy where you take oral estrogen supplements probably won't help with leakage of urine. Now, using vaginal estrogen, so that's estrogen delivered directly to the vaginal tissues, either through a suppository or a cream or a temporary implant that's put inside the vagina, that can help reduce urinary symptoms a bit. So it can help reduce urgency and frequent voiding. But whether it, they help with actual leakage of urine is questionable. It probably doesn't help with stress incontinence. It may help a little bit with urge incontinence just because it's helping with urgency and frequency. But again, that probably is best used in women who have signs of estrogen deficiency. So they can have a condition called a genital urinary syndrome of menopause, whereby the vaginal tissues become atrophic and aren't as healthy as they should be. And treating that with vaginal estrogen can sometimes improve some of the urinary symptoms. But again, specifically for incontinence, not that clear that that is a a very helpful treatment. So, Dr. Welk, we know that urinary incontinence, of course, accompanies the aging process, but at what point does it become serious enough that a woman should seek treatment? I mean, when is it a problem and when is it just normal aging? Yeah, so it's different for everyone, Ian, is the honest answer. So I always tell women if it's affecting your quality of life, affecting the activities you do, affecting your social life, then it's time to, to think about treatment options. And that, that, that sort of point is different for every woman. So some women will come and see me at the point where they're having, you know, enough incontinence for needing like one light pad a day. Other women, it's not a problem until they're using, you know, Depends or adult incontinence products, you know, multiple times a day and then they say, okay, now this is a problem. So it's really different for everyone in terms of the absolute amount of incontinence. It's really about the social and emotional impact the incontinence is having on someone. Um, and that's really the trigger point where, where you know, 
people should recognize there is treatment out there and there are things they can do. And, you know, the, the biggest thing is not everyone's ready to make the leap into doing surgery and taking on some of the risks that come along with that. But there are there are the things we talked about at the beginning of the program that aren't invasive and are extremely low risk. And that's a great starting point for women who aren't really sure if they're, they're ready for surgery. Oh, that's excellent. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Welk. That's it for this episode of the Doc Talks podcast. Thanks for joining us. And join us next time when we'll continue our conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at St. Joseph's London. Or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Until then, stay healthy. 